My first question is always, where are you right now and what are you wearing? I am in Brisbane and I'm in activewear, which is how I spend most of my time. But I have been to the gym this morning, so I'm not just wearing it (laughs) for comfort's sake. Hi, I'm Katrina Blowers and you're listening to Claiming Your Confidence, conversations where we pull back the curtain on what it takes to live your most confident life. I'm a journalist and TV newsreader and of all the people I've interviewed over the years, confidence isn't something any one of them was born with. So what separates those who refuse to let that self-doubt hold them back? Let's find out. Okay, so today's guest has officially blown this podcast's swearing budget out of the water. I think I've sworn more now than I have in any podcast ever. Lisa Cox is many things. She's a speaker, an author, a model who's even been on the New York Fashion Week runway, and she's a consultant in advertising, media, and marketing. She also identifies as someone living with a disability, and she is disrupting the way anyone with a visible difference is represented in the mainstream. People look at me with pity and sorrow and say, oh, you poor thing. Either that or they'll just congratulate me and pat me on the back for being out in public and call me an inspiration. Lisa's whole world changed when she was 24 and had a brain hemorrhage out of the blue caused by an infection. She was in a coma and died twice. For the first couple of weeks or months that I remember, I could swivel my head, blink my eyes and kind of twiddle my my fingers and hands a bit, but that was it. In this episode, we talk about how to find your fearless, why Lisa loves her wheelchair, what dating was like after her surgeries, and the confidence Lisa's drawn upon to challenge major brands to rethink what inclusivity really means. So here's Lisa Cox on claiming her confidence. So for people who don't know you, and I've been lucky enough to recently meet you and work with you hosting a panel that you were one of the speakers on, so I've been given a bit of a head start. For people who don't know you, how would you describe yourself? Well, there are, I suppose, two two sides, two versions, um, and both, both intertwined. So I'm a media professional, speaker, writer, author. And uh, but then there's the the personal side, um, I suppose, which is it's a big part of me, but it's nothing that I want to be defined by. So I was 24 in happily living and working in Melbourne in advertising agencies when I had a stroke. So I spent three weeks in a coma, two months on life support and over a year in hospital after that. Since then, um, my left leg, right toes, nine of my fingertips have been amputated. I've had heart surgery twice and total hip replacement. So they're all of the visible disabilities that you can see, but there are the invisible ones as well from my permanent brain injury. So my speech has been a little bit affected from time to time it gets worse 
and um, anxiety, things like that. My concentration is pretty rotten. And, uh, yeah, I'm over 25% blind with epilepsy. So they're all the things you can't see, but I've tried really hard to continue working in in media in in some way that um, can can shed light and I suppose bring some visibility to disability. Now, you, one of the because you you are a copywriter, mm-hmm. so you write so beautifully. You've authored two books and another ebook, which people can have access to if they go to your website, finding you under Lisa Cox. And I've just I just downloaded it. Then I haven't had a chance to read it, and I want to ask you all about sure. it. Sure. Uh, so you also write a blog on your website and you've written a piece uh, during kind of the worst of COVID at the beginning where you said being young and healthy does not insulate you against illness. And I think you were writing that in reaction to the scenes at Bondi Beach, That's which right. were broadcast around the world. Before, I suppose, the age of 24, you've always been a really active person you climbed mountains and you uh, played a lot of sport. I-, I suppose no one ever thinks anything like this is going to happen to them. Yeah. And doctors even described it as just bloody bad luck. <laughs> yeah, that was quoting them directly, really. It's um, really, really unfortunate. And like you said, I was I was healthy and had the – it won't happen to me. I'm too young. Young people don't have strokes and – 24, I had a stroke. 27, I had my first hip replacement, and I'm a bit older now, but I've uh, got arthritis everywhere. So I joked to my husband that I've got the mind of a, say, 20-year-old and the, the body of a 90-year-old. Oh, some days I feel like that too, Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so where were you when you had your stroke and what did you think was happening to you? Sure. Well, unfortunately, I have no recollection. Fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not sure, but I, I have no recollection. But I was at Melbourne Airport. So I was actually flying home to see my family. I'd moved to Melbourne for work um, a few years before that. And at the airport, apparently, according to flight staff and, and other people who, who can recall the event, I was slurring my words and then collapsed at the airport, was taken to hospital um, where they, they ran tests and, and things like that and worked out what it was, called my family and said, come to Melbourne straight away. We don't think she's going to be alive in the morning. So they flew from Brisbane to Melbourne as soon as they caught in. Obviously, that didn't happen because I'm I'm still here, pretty stubborn. But um, yeah, then next year in hospital was all sorts of fun. And what do you remember? Do you remember waking up in hospital? I do, but it was only um, a few months after the um, the coma and things like that. So I was in the Melbourne hospital for the first two months on life support. Don't remember any of that. Don't remember remember coming out of the coma, off the life support, those sorts of things. My first memories are maybe four months later, give or take, um, sort of coming to in a hospital bed in Brisbane and – I was I was covered in tubes and beeping machines and things like that, even though I was off off the full life support. But that was my first time that I started retaining memories 
Oh my gosh. So who had that conversation with you about what life was going to look like for you from that point on? It it was a, a very, very slow drip feed from my family. And to be honest, nobody knew. And by that, I mean that um, my family were told by specialists down there that they may have to turn off my life support and that, to quote them, I could be a vegetable at the end of this. Um, so no one no one really knew what life would look like for me, what I would, would go on to achieve. Um, obviously, brain injuries and whether it's amputations or something else, it's different for everybody. So um, some people might have a stroke and, and be be much better but obviously mine turned out quite differently so every every day every every month every week we were sort of learning a bit more about how things were going to be. Now you've talked about your family upbringing and you've said that your mum and dad brought you and your siblings up to value the little things in life and to aim high. Do you think it was that that got you through that time and I mean you must have had some pretty dark times. Oh of course yeah I certainly don't want to um, polyan the situation and say it was all rainbows and, and butterflies there were some really really dark times and I was sort of at both ends of the spectrum swinging wildly in between being incredibly grateful and looking for the positives and going wow this is this is fantastic I'm alive and I wasn't supposed to be um, and enjoying the hospital food and going, how lucky am I getting three meals a day <laughs> when there are people who, who aren't getting fed. I'd spent a lot of time um, in developing countries just travelling and climbing pre-disability, so I had seen some unimaginable poverty. And even though I was in a, a public hospital bed and it wasn't ideal, I still recognised my, my little bit of privilege and was grateful for that. But at the same time... I was a mess. I um, this is me part uh, getting used to my brain injury. I'd I'd be happy one minute and in a ball crying the next, and and yeah, it was it was horrible. <laughs> I won't won't lie. It was really really tough. And you've talked about this in the context of goal setting. You mm-hmm. know, breaking breaking big audacious goals down into tiny chunks. That's right. And you've said because you pretty much had to relearn everything. Uh, that one big goal for you was just learning to feed yourself again. Gosh, when you did that, you must have that must have felt like pretty major. It it was I for the first couple of weeks or months that I remember, I could swivel my head, blink my eyes, and kind of twiddle my my fingers and hands a bit, but that was it. And uh, I've always been uh, a fairly, I suppose, competitive person and. And knew that that's not what I wanted to do. I was being spoon-fed by by family and hospital staff and knew that that wasn't going to be how, how it all ended. So I set myself a really, really tiny little goal just to pick up a spoon and put it in my mouth, put food in my mouth and those sorts of things um, because every day I felt myself get just the tiniest bit better. So in... I looked at my legs on the bed for weeks and weeks and couldn't move them a centimetre off the bed. They just would not move. But eventually I raised one off the bed only an inch or so and that to me was progress. So 
um, I applied that same sort of strategy of just just keep practicing and practicing and fail a lot. Very used to failure, but just keep practicing and eventually I could. And so now I'm at the gym five times a week and doing, even though I look very different and still a bit piss weak. Um, yeah, I've certainly come a long way from where I once was. You, you really have. The mindset piece is what I am so, so interested in. And I can only imagine people have had huge confidence knocks from lesser things in their life. Yeah. How did you go about rebuilding your confidence again? Lots of lots of ways, I suppose. And firstly, I, I had an incredibly supportive family, mum, dad, my sister and brother, who who were there every day and, and certainly helped and was, was very fortunate to be in the care of some really great hospital staff. So I certainly can't take take all the credit for, for doing this alone. And um, many, many years of trial and error and being being okay being okay with failure and that's that's across the board whether it be learning to do new things or medications that didn't work and yeah it, it's been a it's been a long a long process of trial and error and being comfortable with failure yeah absolutely and I can imagine at the age of 24, I mean, everyone has these ideas of how their life is going to turn out mm-hmm. and you would have had to reassess a lot of things about, oh, well, for sure. yeah, here's, here's what I thought was going to happen and it doesn't mean that, that those things can't happen. I just need to tackle it in a new way. Talk to us about that. Uh, you're exactly right. So I uh, I was 24 and I thought I'd have champagne on my 25th birthday and be eventually in New York working for an advertising agency. I had all these grand plans, but obviously they went out the window. My 24th and 25th, um, sorry, 25th and 26th birthdays were sipping water in hospital. So very different from what what I had um, first conjured up in my head. But part part of my thinking, something else that that helped me helped me through all of the mindset thing is just knowing um, that what what's done is done. This this attitude that only control or only get upset about what you can control, knowing that I had zero control over what was happening. But the one thing I did have control over were so many of um, the feelings that I had and what I chose to focus on each day and choosing to focus on the, the sun outside instead of the the shitty situation inside, for example. So, it yeah, that, that certainly helped to do it. But life, yeah, life looks very different from what I had first imagined. But that's not to say that it's it looks terrible or I hate it, but... I bloody love my life now. It's so, mm-hmm. so different from what I could have imagined. But I think of all of the amazing opportunities that I've had because of the the shit that happened. Um, one of those was meeting my husband. If it hadn't been for what happened, I would never have come back to live in Brisbane, wouldn't have met him. Um, we've been, been married now for over seven years and I wouldn't change that for the world. And um doing even the event that we met at on the weekend that wouldn't have happened without um all of all of this shit beforehand 
Do you mind if we talk about dating? Were you dating sure. someone at the time when you got your infection? <laughs> well, yes and no. It's a it's a funny story. So technically no, but I came out of the um of the the coma, started retaining memory, and then he he was my hospital bedside, and to my knowledge, I thought, oh great, someone's his. We'll call him Joe. Joe's still here. Great, we're we're still dating, etc. And I was a space cadet, so full of drugs. And then it was only a couple of weeks later or something. My sis- sister said to me, "You do realise that you, know, you you and Joe that was when you broke up." What do you mean we broke up? What? So because I have amnesia from before the hemorrhage, the brain hemorrhage stroke occurred. I um, had completely forgotten we broke up. I, as it turned out, I'd, I'd been dating guys that I don't even remember. From oh my gosh! Beforehand. So he he was a decent enough guy, and and came to my hospital bedside when everything happened. But um, yeah, then going back onto the dating scene, I obviously had bigger things to worry about than getting straight back into dating for the first couple of years. But eventually thought, you know what, I might, I might try dating again. And that was, that was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I bet it was. So confidence wise, it, it all, I suppose, looks different, feels different. How did you get the confidence to put yourself out there again? And where did you begin? Did you go on an app? What did you do? Uh, I went online and I thought how there's a discussion in the disability community about what do you do? Do you put a photo of yourself in a good light or a bad light? And the only photos I had that weren't of me in hospital <laughs> were um, at a friend's wedding when I was a bridesmaid. So I put a couple of photos and of that and thought I, I want to make reference to it somehow that I have a disability because I, you know, would expect the same same sort of thing from someone in return and don't want to roll into the date and then just see their their face do whatever and think, shit, I wish I'd given them a heads up. So in my profile, um, I introduced myself and then at the end just said, by the way, I'm in a wheelchair. It doesn't bother me. But if it bothers you, I'm not interested. Yeah, nicely put. So that was kind of the approach I took that I'm okay with me. And if you're not, then just bugger off. Um, and that was, I suppose, going to the gym as well was another another thing that probably took a a bit of confidence but at the same time knowing that I valued my health and wellness more than what other people thought about me and my very very not insta-worthy gym body (laughs) so Mm. I rolled into the gym in my wheelchair and I was um yeah, certainly, certainly not looking like the the healthiest person there with with muscles and everything. But to me, yeah, I really, really valued my my health more than other people's opinions of me. And yeah, applied oh, that to, to a lot of things, um, whether it was dating or at the gym or just being out at the shops in public, and just valued so many more things rather than other people's opinions of me. 
So how did you meet your husband? Online. In our husband, yeah. Online, yes. So he had obviously read the, um, the I'm in a wheelchair. If you if you have a problem, I'm not interested. So we went out on a couple of dates and it all all went from there. Oh, that's fantastic. That is just wonderful. And in terms of navigating your your everyday life, we spoke about this on the panel mm-hmm. uh, about, well, we were talking in particular about inclusivity yes. with fashion. But I'd love to know, how do you find, we both live in Brisbane, mm-hmm. how do you find getting around and how do you find the world? I remember when my children were very little and I'd push them around in a pram, it made me realise that there's hardly any, you know, um, ramps on on um, footpaths to get yeah. up. It's difficult to get on and off buses. It is it is quite a challenge. How do you find navigating the world? It's some some places are great, other places are a nightmare. So, um, I've got my favourites, I suppose. The area that I live in is um, all fairly accessible, and then I'll if I'm going around myself I'll only go to certain venues that I already know I know every every inch is is planned out of my head where the footpaths are and aren't and where the drops are and things like that but I am very fortunate to have my husband with me sometimes so we've traveled over to Fiji and certain parts of that are really not accessible but but that's okay it's um very different to Australia, but he can he can help haul me up and down gutters that are a, a foot high and and things like that. But as a general rule, I don't go to places in Australia that that aren't accessible. So, to, from a business perspective, that's that's money that's being lost, not just from from me and my credit card, but all all the other people with mobility challenges, whether it's um somebody my age or a bit older and why businesses need to assess things, basic things like accessibility. Yeah, which as we discussed, the statistics around this, it affects a significant portion of the population, 20% in Australia. It is just mind-blowing to me that there isn't more um, because as you said on the weekend, the disability dollar is worth just as much. So why are businesses not marketing or at least um, thinking about this in terms of their business strategies? Oh, that's that's exactly right. And um, I love talking about this stuff because it's brand strategy and advertising and marketing, which is everything that I geek out on. But um, it is it is absolutely a mystery to me why they don't see it. One, it's not just a social justice issue and morally and ethically the right thing to do, but it's just bloody smart business. It, it can potentially be profitable and it's not rocket science either. I've um, spent years and years working in advertising, making my clients, their brands and messages and products visible, but realise that similar strategies, very similar principles could really just be switched to something more important than European cars. Um, Applying those same strategies to disability and looking at the way it's represented in media and advertising and marketing. 
Let's talk about that in terms of fashion. Mm -hmm. What did you discover when you, because you're a really stylish person, what did you discover when you tried to go out and find clothing to fit your new lifestyle? Sure. Well, after after hospital, I pretty much had to rebuy an entire wardrobe. And the reason for that is your audience can't see me, but I now uh, have a prosthetic leg. Um, zips and buttons are, are a nightmare for me with my, my missing fingertips. And I'm also seated in a wheelchair all day, every day. So the clothes that I had previously just weren't weren't suitable for my, my new body shape type and, and lifestyle. So previously I would go shopping, I'd walk into a store and the assistants would, would come running and how can I help you, what can I do and I'd, I'd buy something. And then these days I roll into a store um, and there's crickets. Nobody Nobody says anything, nobody... Everybody looks at me, looks at me very differently as well, and I can't help but think, well, I have, I have a credit card. I want to spend money, um, and I know there are plenty of other people with situations similar to that, which is one reason why I advocate so passionately for for more inclusivity, especially around marketing and advertising. So it's not just about talking to me when I go into the store, but it's including people with disabilities in the advertising and marketing so that they're more inclined to go into the store in the first place. People want to be seen and heard or represented by brands that they buy from. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence with me, Katrina Blowers, and changemaker Lisa Cox. Stick around because Lisa's about to swear a lot. She's going to talk about what's in and out of her fuck budget. You recently wrote a blog post about Australian Fashion Week and how it had um, put us to shame once again. What are the missed opportunities here? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because it's a it's a sore point with me that internationally, wheelchairs, prosthetics, people with visible disabilities have been on catwalks for years. No one, no one bats an eyelid to see it. It's it's no big deal. Um, in Milan and Paris and New York Fashion Week and things like that. But in Australia, we're still refusing to to really go there and, and put people with disabilities on the runway. Um, a piece was, was published some months ago about the fact that models like myself are having to go internationally so I was I was asked to be part of the virtual runway for New York Fashion Week um, this year and that's that's certainly nothing that the Australian fashion industry is considering and I'm, I'm not looking for work for myself here it's about getting other people with disabilities represented because as you said the disability dollar is important and we're still consumers at the end of the day. People assume that once you acquire a disability or are born with a disability that you just don't have an interest in, in fashion and style and things like that, but nothing could be further from the truth. 
You've, uh, you've, as you were describing, that's so incredible, New York Fashion Week, uh, and you've modelled for other labels, including a local label, Christine Stevens, and you are an absolutely stunning woman. And I um, encourage anyone to Google you or look up your Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Did that? Is that something? I guess because you'd already worked in the advertising space, you know how important it is to gain visibility. I guess for if you want something to to get on people's radar, but putting yourself out there, especially as a model, was that tough in the beginning? Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> social social media is is great for um for raising awareness and and things like that, but it certainly took a, a bit of getting used to because I'm I'm old enough to have grown up um, without social media, without a smartphone in my hand like it is all the time now. But um, putting myself out there was in a in a um, a public way was certainly something that I had to get used to. I was used to putting other people's products and brands and their their images out there, but. Putting my own out there certainly took a bit of getting used to. I don't know if it was imposter syndrome or what you'd call it, but, um, yeah, eventually it got okay. I felt like a, a bit of a narcissistic twat at first, but then realised that <laughs> <Don't> we all <laughs> we really needed to um, disrupt the way disability was, was being presented in mainstream popular culture and it was having a bit of fun changing things up and, and shaking up the narrative. So that's that's what I do now. Can we talk about the narrative and about language and labels? Love to. What 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 is what is the current thinking or is it divided uh, around you know the label of disability and able-bodied? Well, I can I'll say that I only speak for myself because I can I can speak generally, but. It's different with every single person, I suppose, um, and that's why I don't want or ever want to make broad generalisations about how everybody with a disability feels because nothing drives me more bananas <laughs> <laughs> than when people try and try and speak on my behalf and assume assume what I would like to be said or not said. But um, I have no problems with the word disability personally. Um, I've jokingly referred to myself as a bit of a spaz sometimes, but that might offend other people, those words. I know I have a, a good friend who's a fashion designer with disabilities who uses the word gimp, and I can't stand that word, but she she just jokes about it and thinks it's fine. So every, everybody is different, but I, from what I've heard, most people don't have a problem with disability. And how would you then like to see the media report on issues around disability visibility and the kind of language that the media uses? Yeah, sure. Well, at the moment, uh, to set the scene, there are really only two ways disability is represented, speaking generally across you know, newsrooms, marketing, advertising, all those things. Um, at one end of the spectrum, there's the the very frail, sick um, version of disability uh, that invokes P 
pity and sympathy and, and things like that. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have amazing Paralympians who rightfully should be, be celebrated and are inspirational people, but they're the only two versions of disability that we see. We, we don't see mum driving the kids to school who also happens to have a disability or guy sitting at his office desk and he also happens to have a disability. There's really general day-to-day stuff that plenty of disabled people do and the result of that is that when, for example, I do go out in public, people look at me with pity and sorrow and say, oh, you poor thing. Either that or they'll just congratulate me and pat me on the back for being out in public and call me an inspiration for doing the grocery oh. shopping by myself. So oh my gosh. That's, that's sort of the flow and effect, I suppose, of only seeing this really narrow, narrow narrative. Um, but just around, around language, there are lots of lots of ways that we can we can change things up but again every individual has has their own set of of what they of their own set of preferences I suppose but speaking as someone in a wheelchair one thing that does frustrate us quite a bit is to see the word wheelchair bound or confined to a wheelchair now Having a media background, I completely understand why words like that are used. They're they're good clickbait, they get interest, etc. But I love my wheelchair and so do a lot of people in one. It's for me it's it's a source of freedom and independence. I I travel around the world on this thing and I really do love it. I posted um something to Instagram a little while ago of me sitting on a park bench. And I said, I'm I'm really more confined to this park bench than I am in my wheelchair. In my wheelchair, I can go anywhere and do anything. But sitting on this park bench, being confined to a park bench, um, I, I can't do anything. I'm I'm stuck. So little little changes like that. It doesn't have to be big, but changes like that um, would would really help. You are so right. Imagine if we, you know, like a McDonald's commercial or, you know, another major brand just featured someone in a, in a wheelchair or with a, an, a disability of some kind without making any reference to it whatsoever. You're exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. So times that disability has been, has been featured or included, unfortunately, there has been a, a focus on, oh, look, they, they, brands might want to pat on the back and say look at us aren't we great we've got a we've got one of the poor little disabled people in our ad and it's like no bugger off (laughs) that's 20% of the population you're speaking to it should be they should be included just like every other every other cast member every other talent yeah, yeah. Gosh, and and anyone listening, Lisa Cox is available. <laughs> you can no, contact her no, on the <laughs> Not looking for work for myself, just looking looking to get more more representation across the board for for anyone with with a disability because we we all have credit cards too. And so do my family and friends who want to see people like me represented it's it's not just good for me as as someone with a disability but it's really good for non-disabled people in the general public 
to see people like me or, or somebody else with a visible difference in mainstream media and popular culture because they get the impression that way that, hey, they, they're just like me. They they go shopping for, for toilet paper as well. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first thing that popped into my head since we've all had the, the toilet paper thing with COVID recently. <laughs> Yes, exactly. I want to talk to you about what you've learned. This is the title of the ebook that you've written, what you've learned about finding your fearless. You say that there are some simple steps you can take to a fearless future. You've got me interested. <laughs> what are they? I mean, for anyone who's listening, who perhaps is is facing a challenge right now. Their life maybe has changed and their future isn't what they thought that it once was. How do they look towards a future without fear? Okay, so I know I spoke about one previously, which was the small steps and Take, taking small steps and congratulating yourself for taking those small steps. And one of the reasons to do that is that we, when we think of the, the end goal, for example, it gets so overwhelming and we can often just go, no, that's, that's too hard. So when I first came out of the coma and first retired, started retaining memory, I didn't think, right, time to write two books, be a public speaker, get on the runway and... No, I had to start really, really small and learn to feed myself and dress myself and and things like that again. Type type again. Um, and learning to type again, fortunately, I still had the brain capacity to, to string things together. But as a writer, all the tools of my trade had been destroyed, my, my fingertips, my eyesight, my brain function. So... It was a very, very slow process, one sentence at a time, one paragraph at a time until eventually I had a book and then another one and now all my other writing. But being being okay with just starting small and not seeing those those goals as insignificant if they are a little bit smaller than wanting to be the CEO and earn millions or, or whatever, whatever the bigger goals may be. Um, Surrounding yourself with with like-minded people, and an important thing with this is not just people who act as mirrors and echo chambers for yourself. And I don't know if I can say this: blow smoke up your ass. <laughs> you can say that. <laughs> Surrounding yourself with really authentic people who who will tell you when you're just full of BS or you need to you are wrong or or something like something like that and need to need to rethink but surrounding yourself with the with the right sorts of people and for you was that your family primarily it was it was my family initially it definitely was my family um it was the few friends that hung on that, that stayed around after after I'd acquired disabilities. And then later on, and this applies to everyone now with social media and the online world, um, surrounding myself online with people who had a, a similar way of, of thinking and, and viewing the world to me. And by, by that, I just mean of the disabled people. I'd had disabled friends in the past, but I didn't have a really close circle of people with disabilities. So nobody really understood 
what was going on, what was going on in my life. And of course, I never saw it represented in, in mainstream popular culture other than the, the stereotypes. So surrounding myself with, with people who understood what I was going through and could give me the right sorts of advice was really important as well. And I love this. You've got um, another strategy here. Learn the difference between excuses and reasons. Yes, that's right. So I give the example that um, 15 years ago, if I if I didn't want to go to the gym, that was a reason. I was in a coma, so <laughs> a, a very good reason. But these days, um, unless something really terrible happens, any reason I have not to go to the gym is is pretty much an excuse most of the time, unless I don't have medical clearance. But I mean, apply that to whatever whatever area of your life you want to. If it's the email that I didn't send, or or something like that, or the work I had to do, or the the cleaning that I didn't do, um, yeah, knowing knowing the difference between um excuses and and reasons so that means being honest with yourself and that's that's taken a bit of work and certainly something else that I've I've learned is that sometimes you just need to sit yourself down and have a bit of an honest chat you know mm-hmm. this is this is an excuse let's be honest um stop calling it a reason Yes, I think we can all take something away from that. <laughs> now we're we're coming to the end of our time together and I have four rapid fire questions I sure. always finish up on. The first one is, what would be your number one confidence tip or hack? It's probably the one that I just talked about before, which is surrounding yourself with the right sorts of people. There's the old saying that most of your listeners would have heard that you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with and in today's world that includes online and offline so if you're waking up every morning and checking your phone like I do and just seeing a heap of quote perfect perfect Instagram bodies and and those sorts of things think of it this way would you allow 10 strangers into your room to just tell you how rubbish you looked and your your hair, your your waistline, your clothes, whatever, because that's essentially the same thing we do when we grab our phones first thing in the morning and aren't um, consuming the right sorts of content. And the same applies to the the real world as well. It's surrounding yourself with the the right sort of people has been been really key for me. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And the same, I think, too, applies to the podcasts you choose to listen to yes. and um, the TV shows you mindlessly consume. <laughs> it's, it's everything, I think. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah. Now, is there a book that you've read or an inspirational quote that's helped you on your way in your confidence journey? One of my favourite inspirational quotes, which during COVID period has, has been very relevant, but this too shall pass, 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 don't know why I said that with an American accent, <laughs> um, but my favourite book is Mark Manson, and if you aren't following him on Instagram, he's just awesome. He's a sort of a no, no BS, um, self-help without the BS I suppose, and he wrote a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F-U-C-K. Yeah. Um, and I love that book. It's, it's right up 
right up my alley in terms of my my mindset around a lot of things in my life. I just setting a I don't know if I can swear. Can I swear? Of course you can. Okay. We're all grown ups. Excellent. He talks about setting a fuck budget every um every few months and deciding about what you want to give a fuck about and what you don't. So as I spoke about earlier, I give a fuck about my health and wellness and that's why I go to the gym but I couldn't give a flying fuck what everyone in that gym thinks of me and my strange body and my awkward maneuvers onto gym equipment and that's in my no fucks given budget but um yes I love this what whatever size or or shape I am couldn't give a a flying fuck about that either (laughs) but um my health and still being here in 40 years time for my husband and my family my nieces and nephews that's the shit I give a fuck about yes everyone else can just get fucked I think I've sworn more (laughs) now than I have in any podcast ever You've officially, you've officially exceeded the swear budget of oh, every guest gosh. I've had on. Whoever's editing this is just going to be beep, beep, beep. <laughs> oh, gosh, I love that. All right, what do you do for pure joy, something that has no outcome or goal attached to it? I just drink coffee and spend spend time with my husband just just hanging out with him it's it puts the biggest smile on my face we're about to become parents of a a little puppy so I think I think we'll just be playing with the puppy as well as a way to have nothing nothing to do and that will just that will just bring us pure pure joy (sighs) I just I just got a second dog who's a little puppy and I tell you, you can waste hours and hours of your life just watching them play and it is, they are pure joy just in a little fursuit. (laughs) (laughs) We visited him on the weekend. He's still with the trainer but um, because he's been trained as as a therapy support dog for me as well. At the moment, I've spent hours on Instagram stories from the from the breeder just just watching that so I suppose that's the other thing that's bringing me joy right now is watching videos of him from the trainer and the breeder just with a smile we watch them every morning oh it's beautiful and what are you working on right now in your confidence journey because we all know confidence isn't really a destination you have to keep working on it oh, for so sure. what are you what are you working on right now to take you to where you next want to be in your life hmm I'm getting back on the runway with Christina Stevens um for the Mercedes-Benz Brisbane Fashion Month show so that's that's going to be a bit of fun and I'm I'm far too old and far too disabled to be (laughs) to be a model and definitely don't fit this stereotype but I'm loving just um yeah changing a few preconceptions about what what is possible or what can be possible for for people with disabilities so also working with some mainstream brands which is really exciting they're they're finally starting to get the memo that uh representation is important 
not just because it makes them look like socially responsible brands, but it's pretty smart business. So doing a, a few little collaborations there, which is really, really exciting because I've been on my soapbox for years ranting and raving about this stuff, not thinking anyone was listening, but somebody's <laughs> somebody's finally listening, which is which is nice. Well, Lisa, I can't thank you enough for just being so beautiful and honest and for everything that you are doing to champion the cause of representation because let's face it, we need to see the world as it really is, not as some glossy, weird marketing version of what I suppose a bunch of suits in an office think the world is. That's exactly right. thank you so much, Lisa, for everything you're doing. No problems at all. Thanks very much, Katrina. Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Turn. Term 6 podcast productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.